welcome to the History Uncensored podcast. As always, I'm your host, Seth Michaels. Thank you so much for joining me today at the start of September or in the future, wherever that may be. First things first, again, it's been a while. Just to update you on my life like I usually do. I had hip surgery and it is really hard to sit in a chair for an hour or two to record something after you have hip surgery. So that's where I've been laying down, reading, basically. Enough of that. Welcome back to the channel. This will be the third episode in the Theodora trilogy, I guess I can call it now. We have learned that Theodora, who became Empress, was once a performer. She was once a prostitute-ish. Concubine? Both. She fucked her way into power. She got dumped by the dude who basically brought her into that life. Made her way back to Constantinople. Met Justinian. Wormed her way into his confidence. Castrated a bishop. Built the little, helped build the little Hagia Sophia. And uh, saved a whole bunch of children from prostitution. So all in all, a pretty good start to her life, I would say. Pretty accomplished for somebody that really came from nothing. So let's get back to that. Theodora and I left off and we were right about at the Nika Revolt. This is probably one of the things that Theodora is most famous for. Rightfully so. Theodora is a total fucking badass, and this will just kind of go, this will just kind of prove it. And I think this is how I ended the last episode, but war and misfortune during the period from 527 to December 531 formed the backdrop to the catastrophe that would occur in the first half of January 532. The catastrophe, beginning with relatively minor riots in the Hippodrome, was one of two events in the next decade where Theodora's personal intervention is well attested as having changed the course of her husband's reign, saving him from deposition. Deposition, beheading, who knows, maybe they might have pulled a Theodora herself, you know, went and castrated him. Who cares? I mean, I care. That's why I'm sharing it. I didn't mean that. But to preserve her position, and Theodora was so not ready to give up her position of power, her and Justinian's position within the Empire, she would end up going to pretty extraordinary lengths to convince her husband that it's really worth fighting for. Here's a little poem. All nature, a queen ever sings thy might, for thou didst destroy the ranks of the enemy. For that after the evil broils thou didst kindle a light for prudent men, and didst scatter the civil troubles of the strife that loosed the horses. Theodore's power wasn't a dogmatic invention. It was born from real circumstances. It was the result of victory over enemies within the Empire. There had been civil troubles. I as I talked about, right in the Hippodrome. It's a pivotal place in the fabric of Constantinople's life, and of Theodora's life in particular. And while ceremonial protocol forbade the Auguste from officially attending the game, still the poet saw Theodora's shadow hanging over the arena like a symbolic icon. And indeed, it was Theodora who determined the outcome of the Nika insurrection. The most violent and momentous urban riots ever to occur in antiquity or late antiquity. Over 30,000, maybe even as many as 50,000 people perished in the, in the riots. In the most important metropolis of the Christian world, a tenth or twelfth of the population died. Some say that these deaths were the cruel sacrifice paid to the new idol of the Christian world, Theodora. The actual cause of the rebellion, though, was kind of, you know, bloody-minded, stupid incompetence by Justinian and his senior officials. When I say these things out loud, sometimes I don't realize how much they really mix in with, with what's happening in our own world. Uh, and I think that's something that we really need to interpret as historians or aspiring historians or people who just aspire to be better than those who came before us. 
And if no statement rings truer in this podcast to me, then as we shall discover, it was bloody minded, stupid incompetence by a leader and their senior staff. Um, take that as you will. But yeah, it, it, it kind of rings true about what's happening right now. I just want to give you a heads up that the upcoming sections are to eventually highlight Theodore's role in extubating the stupidity of Justinian and fighting for their imperial rule. These aren't from Theodora's perspective, but it is important to lay down this groundwork so we better understand how she was able to accomplish what she eventually does. The first person I'm going to talk about is John the Cappadocian. He didn't have a classical education, but he knew accounting very well. He knew his figures. We all know people like that, just people who are very good at math. But Justinian, one of Justinian's right-hand men, right? Justinian expected him to generate the income or the savings which he needed to pursue his great idea of renewal and restoration. And John met his expectations. He made sure that fiscal laws were obeyed. And the laws were pretty scattered before John took office, but he he was really him and Justinian were really the driving force behind some new laws that were that were put out. John supervised landowners, merchants, and the shopkeepers. Um, revenues were routed directly to him by his inspectors instead of passing through the provincial elites as they had been before. John was pivotal in the process of centralization required by Justinian's plan. A manager with a sharp eye for cutting costs, John reduced and even eliminated part of the postal service. Hmm. Which is the essential glue of any polity. Interesting. I swear to God, I didn't, like, wait to do this podcast and, until now, but damn, as I'm reading through my notes, sh this shit just hits home, doesn't it? Um... The public post office not only guaranteed speedy communications, but also affected the supply of all kinds of raw materials and staple commodities. The results of its elimination were disastrous for rural industry and communities, a productive base that contributed food and tax revenue to the empire. So while John was good at cutting costs, perhaps he cut costs in some of the wrong areas. When the food supply is irregular, life gets harder in a capital overcrowded with mouths to feed. Besides, hungry people talk, and Constantinople always offered fertile terrain for all kinds of vicious gossip, both in late antiquity and in the Middle Ages. And so before long, John the Cappadocian was being blamed on moral and Christian grounds instead of being judged simply by bureaucratic or political criteria. It was rumored that he was an evil man who kept Roman citizens in secret chambers, forcing them to pay taxes he claimed were overdue by threatening them with the same humiliating torture inflicted on slaves or highway robbers. Nostalgia for the past, but by present needs, that prompted the Nika Rebellion sprung from the grassroots of society, the people. As was always the case in Constantinople, it started in the Hippodrome. So this is the true story about the Hippodrome, right? The trouble began on January 3rd, 532, right after our new year, when the Green Faction rose to protest government oppression and demanded the ousting of certain officials. Something that may have been said, Long may you live, Justinian Augustus. May you be victorious. I am wronged, O paragon of virtue, and cannot endure it, as God knows. I'm afraid to give his name in case he prospers the more, and I put myself in danger. Now, the Green Faction begins to protest that it stands for justice and orthodoxy, kind of conservative ways, whereas if he does not heed them, the Emperor, that the Emperor stands for neither justice or orthodoxy. A dangerous situation has now arisen, one that Justinian handles poorly. Instead of diffusing the situation when the crowd finally identifies Calopodios the Spatharius, captain of the Imperial Bodyguard, as the object of its rage, he merely tells the people they're wrong. No, 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 you guys, nobody is like that. It, with my people, I hire the best people. You're just, you have no idea what you're talking about. The herald to Justinian counters the people of the Hippodrome by saying... 
they were here to simply insult their rulers, not to watch races and enjoy the affair. The Herald then goes on to call them Jews, Manessians, Samaritans. Angered, nettled, the green faction asserts their orthodox credentials. Then they accuse the emperor of covering up the murders of faction members, specifically green faction members, finally exclaiming, would that Sabidius, Justinian's father, had not been born. That way he would not have a murderer for a son. For all of his efforts to enhance the dignity of the imperial office, Justinian remains in the eyes of his subjects, or at least some of them, the son of a peasant. And presumably, Theodora is the whore she has not infrequently been accused of. After further insults, the dialogue breaks off and whatever else may have happened on January 3rd, the Greens decide to take it the rest of the day off. The issue of Justinian's actual power is left very much open to a crowd asserting that it represents the truth. The emperor who claims to be God's agent, as I talked about that before, this dude is like, fuck you, I am basically in direct communication with God, God's deliverer of justice and honor and ruler of the people on earth, that he stands for injustice and oppression. That's not, those aren't good things to stand for. And eventually the situation gets no better when on Sunday, the 11th of January, the prefect of the city tries to bring seven men to justice on a charge of murder. The seven men are led through the city to the place of execution on the far side of the Golden Horn. Four of them are decapitated and three scheduled to hang. I'm just curious, why would you choose to fucking behead some of them and hang the others? I guess one would be like, yeah, you deserve to die quickly. And the other one's like, you deserve to die slowly. Maybe that's it. That's mean. Um, capital punishment. <laughs> After the first had been hanged, the, the next two, one from each faction, are brought to the scaffold, the green and the blue. The executioner botches the job. The crowd has been gathered to applaud the deaths, is horrified when he tries to hang the men again, and again fucks it up. People begin to acclaim Justinian, now in their reeling minds, the image of justice as a way of demanding that the men be set free. Obviously, God does not want these men to be killed. They tried and failed twice to do it. Monks arrive on the scene from the monastery of St. Conan and offer the condemned men sanctuary. The prefect, Udaemon, orders the monastery be put under guard. That may have been another mistake. This time, the blues and the greens. Remember, the men were from... Each faction, one from the blue, one from the green. This time, the blues and the green, speaking as one unified voice, demand freedom for the two men. Justinian refuses to give in. Indeed, he manages to inflame the situation even further. The day's 22 races are run, and at the end of the afternoon, the faction's chanting changes to long live the merciful blues and greens. <laughs> Yikes. Shouting Nika, or victory as their watchword, they advance on the city prefect's office at the Praetorium on the Mies near the Forum of Constantine. Receiving no satisfaction, they free prisoners from within the building and set it on fire. Sounds like everything's going really well so far. Then they move on down to the Great Square in front of the palace's bronze gate and set more fires. I, I can just imagine Justinian like looking out and be like, Oh, shit. Um, call the fire brigade. Call the fire brigade. That's a joke from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Go watch it. And they set more and more fires. One of the buildings destroyed in these fires is the Church of Hagia Sophia. Justinian keeps his guards inside the palace and possibly at this moment offers sanctuary to members of the senatorial order. That's exactly what you need to do to ingratiate yourself into the good graces of the people you are trying to calm down as. Fuck you guys and your fires. Come here, senators. You can come hide with me. The smell of smoke would have lain heavily over the city on the morning of the 14th. 
when crowds gathered once again in the Hippodrome, right? Basically the center of unrest in the city. Now, though, they had a greater sense of purpose, imperial injustice, as those who gathered now saw it had sparked the riots while imperial unwillingness to listen had caused them to spread. Remember, Justinians, go fuck yourselves. You guys don't know what you're talking about. And this morning, the 14th, the people made it clear that they wanted to see real substantiated change and demanded that their emperor dismiss Udaiman, John of Cappadocia, and Trebonian, the three men responsible for order in the city and for Justinian's well-advertised program of legal reform, including getting rid of the postal service. Hmm. In the eyes of Constantinople's people, these men had failed. Justinian chose not to face the crowd on this occasion, but received news through officials he had sent to listen in. Then at last he responded, announcing this, the dismissal of the three along with the appointment of a new quaestor and new praetorian prefect. You think maybe that it was a little bit too late? So he was basically in his palace, sending runners back and forth. Do you think? Perhaps hiding in a bunker, sending messages would have been as effective as publicly stating these things out loud. The mood of the crowd now turned blacker, darker, ominous, and people were wondering whether they might get rid of Justinian as well. What an incompetent man! A mob now made its way to the house of Anastasius's nephew, Probus, to see if he would take the throne. But Probus fled the city because he's like, fuck that, I don't want to die. Just as Anikia Juliana's husband had done when confronted with a similar offer during Anastasius's reign. The disappointed crowd now chanting, Alan Bezelia te pole, another emperor for the city. Hopefully, I, I probably fucked that up, but hopefully you get the idea. They were screaming, we need a new emperor, and they burned down... Probus's house. By now, more than a little perturbed, Justinian sent troops into the street to fight the rioters. But there weren't enough of them, and all they did was really make people even more angry. They're like, yeah, new emperor, that rat bastard sent men to hurt us. Get him. So they beat the crap out of the, the, um, the men Justinian sent, and just made them angrier. It really just inflamed the situation. Perhaps 2,000 strong, the soldiers tried making a sortie outside, assuming that with their training, they would easily prevail over the more numerous but less disciplined rebels. But once again, some churchmen intervened unexpectedly, just as the monks had the past Saturday when they took the men uh, into their sanctuary. Some men from the the Basilica of the Holy Wisdom appeared in the street. They were carrying the relics they had saved from their recent fire. They wanted to separate the crowd from the soldiers and save some lives. But Belisarius's troops saw them as an impediment and trampled them on the pretext that they were obstructing military action. So these guys were like, okay, there should probably be peace between everybody. Here are some really important holy relics in one of the greatest Christian cities on the planet. We saved these from the fire, and we're going to stand between you and the rioters, and there will be peace. And the, the troops were just like, yeah, you guys are in our way. So we're just going to go through you. How is that a good idea? Fighting continued all the way through Friday the 16th. New fires destroyed more buildings, including the Church of St. Irene and a major hospital, killing those within. Shit's just going haywire. On the morning of the January 18th, Justinian attempted to resolve the crisis. Let's see how this goes. Word must have been sent beforehand from the palace, most likely through faction officials telling the crowd that the emperor would appear that morning in the Hippodrome. As it was a Sunday, it was not a day for races. This was, in fact, to be a very special event. For when Justinian appeared, he was holding a codex containing a gospel. He then spoke to his people directly, though his herald may have repeated what he said so all could hear, and swore an oath to them. By this power, and perhaps maybe he held up the gospel, I forgive you this error, and I order that none of you shall be arrested, but be peaceful, 
For there's nothing on your head, but rather on mine. For my sins made me deny to you what you asked of me in the Hippodrome. It was an astonishing piece of theater. So completely out of character that one may wonder if someone in the palace with some dramatic sense put him up to it. Hmm. Unsubstantiated. Just, you know, guessing. And it almost worked. Elements in the crowd picked up the loyal's chant of Justinian! Justinian! Others perhaps roared, You're a forsworn ass! You're jackanapes, you pile of shit! At this, Justinian offered no reply and withdrew into the palace. Maybe he thought to himself that went well. Maybe not. The mixed response to the emperor may not have been entirely coincidental, for it does appear that Hypatius had decided to make a bid for the throne. Oh shit. And had been stage managing events with considerable care. When Justinian withdrew, the crowd poured out of the Hippodrome, encountering Hypatius and Pompeius as it went. Justinian's gone, crowd leaving, and there's a guy that wants to take the throne. What's about to happen? Now the chant that rang out from the entire mob was Hypatia Auguste as they escorted him to the Forum of Constantine. Basically, they were saying, Hypatius, be our Augusta, be our leader, be our emperor. There stood the great column in the center of the Forum supporting a gigantic statue of Constantine completed on the day of his inauguration of the city. And it was here that people bought imperial insignia that had been stowed in the palace of Flacia, the first wife of Theodosius. The fact that the palace was a fair distance from the Forum of Constantine is but one of several clues suggesting that Hypatius had spent the previous evening conspiring to engineer Justinian's oust. Right? It was like, all right, here's what we need to do. Don't be near Justinian. Probably not a good idea. And he appeared to be with his own band of thugs recruited from the area around that same palace, which was close to the church of the Holy Apostles where Constantine's body had been interred. A whole lot of symbolism is really obvious. He's drawing upon the memory of past emperors, real emperors, including the very founder of the city, to oust the usurper. Julianus, the Praetorian Prefect, whom John the Cappadocian had replaced, plus his brother now joined him as he made his way to the Imperial Box in the Hippodrome. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily, and we're from Whining About History. Ever notice how women seem to be missed, forgotten, or maybe even purposely left out of history books? We did, so we decided to take the his out of history and make it herstory. Each episode, we discuss the lives and general awesomeness of these historical wonder women, all while having a glass of wine. Or maybe a bottle. Come join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms at WAHpod on Instagram, WAH underscore pod on Twitter, and at Whining About History. Remember, that's no H or E in whining. See you you soon. soon. Cheers! Think about this. In January 532, Constantinople was the very image of a world turned upside down. The emperor, the lord, he was holed up in his palace like a prisoner, fearing to go outside. Former prisoners walked the streets freely. Women were seen in the streets, which was uncommon and exciting. Disorder and anarchy reigned in the city just as it was trying to codify new laws that were to stand gloriously through the centuries. The night sky was lit by fires. Hospitals and churches were destroyed, and those with wounded bodies and spirits were left homeless. Even the house of the rebels' favorite candidate had been set on fire. In a perverse switch, the city once considered the center of triumphant civilization was suddenly home to every possible barbarity. The right gesture might be taken as a sign, so Justinian's secret council considered all kinds of possible actions. A true Roman male in ancient times, even someone as abominable as Nero, would have killed himself to save his honor. How does that save your honor? But suicide was an unsuitable choice for a Christian. Hmm. Maybe they should run the fuck away. It kinda seemed like the only option left. The southern coast of the Black Sea, or 
the southern coast of the back god fuck the southern coast of the black sea offered a safe haven of sorts with lands and palaces still faithful to the crown really it was constantinople itself that had turned against the crown and imperial order this would be a good temporary solution, a fine place from which to later recapture the city. But Justinian knew his ancient history, and he knew that such a solution was rarely successful. He knows that if you run away and you give the people the better power and stuff, you're probably not going to come recapture what you had. It just probably won't work. But what should he do? Justinian was at a loss. Even as Hypatius was heading for the Hippodrome, rumors spread that Justinian had taken a ship to Thrace. Running like a little bitch. Thrace, if we remember, is where Spartacus is from. Go listen to those episodes. Or episode, it's awesome. Flight was certainly his plan when he summoned his advisors to a meeting. It was then that Theodora intervened. Procopius has her speak to the emperor as follows. Remember, Procopius kind of an asshole, kind of hated Theodora and Justinian, the whole demon nonsense. Oh, whatever. Here's what he said, she said. Whether it is shocking for women to speak in the presence of men or to urge on those who are cringing in fear, I think is not a matter for discussion at the present time, whatever one may think. For those whose affairs have come into the greatest danger, there's no other best choice than to look for what is somehow best. I believe that flight is not in our interest, even if it should be possible. As now, for it is not possible for a person who has come forth into life to avoid death. But it is not possible for one who has ruled to become a fugitive. I shall never be separated from this purple, nor shall I live for a single day. If those who encounter me do not call me mistress, if you wish to be saved, my lord, that is not a problem. We have a great deal of money. The sea is at hand and there are ships. But consider if it will benefit you when you have been saved or if safety would be exchanged happily for death. For me, the old saying is best, that power is a splendid shroud. Since Procopius wasn't in the room when Theodora spoke, there really isn't a reason to think that she actually said those things. It's fun to think about, perhaps, that she commanded a presence like that. But on the other hand, there is a very good reason to think that she may have had the impact he attributes to her, right? So all of these things, perhaps not exactly true, definitely came. It was obvious that Theodora was pushing them to stay. It was well known in the aftermath of the riots that people thought Justinian was fleeing the city. Yet, in a very different tradition, we are told that Theodora pressed him to execute Pompeius and Hypatius. Furthermore, unlike the secret history Procopius writes, from which the passage above comes, or previously comes, was written for public consumption while Theodora was still alive. One of Procopius's major themes in the wars was Belisarius's genius. And we may reasonably conclude, since Belisarius was certainly present when Justinian decided not to take flight, that this representation of Theodora's role was acceptable to him, and to others who actually knew what happened. It may also be significant that this version does not cast the vacillating Justinian in an especially good light, right? Just kind of cowering, having to hear of counsel from a woman, no less. But that's part of what this podcast is about, is to really show that women have had a strong voice in history regardless of what we've been taught. The best that can be said is that while Hypatius is shown to ignore the good advice of both his wife and of a senator named Oridon to stay away from the Hippodrome, Justinian took heed. Theodora was accustomed to defying the world's customs and conventions. She wouldn't fucking run. Should Justinian choose to retreat, she wouldn't share his fate. She would stand. He would prove himself unworthy of the throne in her eyes. In spite of his ego, his studies of antiquity, even his concept of messianic power, he might choose to flee doing something that no Roman emperor had ever considered suitable or possible. Regardless, she would remain faithful to her purple. She would carry on the tradition of antiquity 
in the present in her deeds, not just in words, not just in plans for the future. She would do so by resisting, even dying because there was no life without the purple cloak of power. To avoid being separated from her purple, Theodora was saying she was willing to even lose Justinian and marry death itself to choose the power over the man who had granted it to her. These tangled developments that followed the speech were also necessary, theatrical. Backstage, none of the men in the Imperial Council dared look Theodora in the eye, for this woman, with her bold advice, seemed to be the only manly presence left. But the idea of fleeing had been discarded, and the men debated strategies for intervention and resistance, emboldened by Theodora's powerful response. Whatever she said, however she said it, Theodora's intervention changed the course of events. Justinian resolved to end the rebellion by, rebellion by force, and when Hypatius took his place in the imperial box, the emperor was ready to act. Hypatius was more ambivalent, at least at first. He had with him a man named Ephraim, one of Justinian's personal guards, whom he sent into the palace to deliver a message to the emperor. Justinian should be grateful the message went that Hypatius had gathered all Justinian's enemies in one place. I mean, come on. Inside the palace, Ephraim found only the emperor's doctor. Didn't even find him. Thomas, who told him to tell Hypatius that Justinian had ran away. Now Hypatius appeared convinced that he really was in charge. The message that Ephraim delivered remains one of the great puzzles of the day. Did he really fail to spot the massive troops gathering in the palace? Did he look hard like was he was he just do, 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 do. oh hey guys how you doing maybe they're just out there training was he a double agent the answer i mean to me seems pretty obvious i would speculate that he was the latter right he most likely a double agent for he would survive the massacre that followed his return to the box and in the end would only suffer exile which in the context seems less like a punishment and more like a way of protecting him. Seems right. Basically, what I'm trying to say is Theodora saved the day. Narcissus' eunuchs were sent into the Hippodrome crowd with cash from the palace coffers. They handed out coins with ambiguous words like, Careful, you're allied with the Greens now. But Hypatius will favor them over you. Remember what your situation was like before Justinian. Meanwhile, another sortie was launched with another kind of metal, swords instead of coins. Well, people were handing out coins and were being ingratiated into perhaps this new imperial regime. Justinian was planning. All of his enemies were in one spot. Belisarius and Mundus took their troops and they slipped out of the palace, and they were quiet and disciplined, and no one noticed them. Doubtful. It was an ironic twist of destiny. They were headed, heading for a route in the Hippodrome, just as Hypatius had suggested in the message that never reached Justinian. Belisarius entered the Hippodrome from the western gate, which had direct access to the blue section. Mundus and his men used the entrance ominously called the Dead Man's Gate. The large crowd gathered assembled in the huge arena was armed with only primitive weapons and it could not resist the two select corps of military professionals. A ferocious fucking slaughter ensued, just destroying the people that were in the Hippodrome who were welcoming the new imperial power. This was perhaps the bloodiest Sunday of the first Christian millennium. The palace guard, which had been hesitating between the rebels and the leg legitimate ruler, opened the doors of the imperial gallery and easily captured the frightened Hypatius and his followers, including his brother Pompeius. There was no resistance. The uprising was defined as a crime of high treason, which was punished by beheading. The rebels were immediately led before the emperor. Hypatius told Justinian that he had given him proof in writing of his fealty. Your message never reached us, was the answer. But you did not have to wait such a long time to show your loyalty to the emperor. It was at this point that Hypatius began begging for his life. Since the two men knew each other well, the emperor was inclined to spare Hypatius in a generous act of clemency. Maybe Justinian was just tired about all of the blood that was probably still soaking the grounds in the Hippodrome. 
Or maybe he may have considered the lofty concept of benevolence that the rebels had wanted to grab away from the Emperor. And of course, he may have recalled the recent blame over his treatment of Vitalian. He was not eager to hear the same accusations again in the future. Just as in previous council when debating between resistance and flight, the Emperor's thinking was worlds away from the blunt realism that of the daughter of the Hippodrome. She knew the arena habitat all too well. Theodora knew that a wounded beast has to be killed immediately. Letting the two brothers live would be seen as proof of weakness, she argued. It would undermine the continuity of power, dim the splendor of the Emperor's majesty, and rekindle the conspiracies. A few hours earlier, the Emperor had appeared before the rebels with the gospel in his hand. What had been the result? Theodore insisted that the law be applied. She disregarded her family ties to Hypatius and Pompeius through her daughter who had married into the house of Anastasius. Theodora put aside her private life and reacted to public events. And in one stroke, she implicitly shifted Justinian's personal private position. From that moment on, she had to acknowledge that he owed his purple, his imperial right to her. In the official version of what happened, no one is said to have escaped. The total number of casualties for this day alone was ultimately put at 30,000. Hypatius and Pompeius were executed the next day, their bodies then thrown into the sea. Still, I think her instincts were correct, right? You don't just let people who, as leaders, who were inspiring uh, rebellion, high treason, to live to try it again later. Her job wasn't to run away, it was to rule. And any who doubted her resolve to be empress at any cost was gravely mistaken. And thus ended the bloodiest revolt in antiquity. Bloodiest non-slave revolt, I should say. Because, you know, we already talked about the slave revolts in Italy, in Rome, and Spartacus. Undeniably, after the Nika uprising, the Empire found the impetus and the energy it needed to achieve the restoration it had postponed for so long. So maybe the Nika slaughter was a propitiatory rite, and perhaps Theodora was its idol or its high priestess. Still, it sucks that 30 to 50,000 people had to die for ruling always comes at the cost of, of the people. Though Theodora was acting in her best interest, was it the best interest of history? Was it the best interest for the empire? That's not for me to decide, but 30,000 people were killed because the folly of Justinian and his officials. Vast sums would need to be spent repairing the city. Some of this might have come from confiscated estates of senators who were felt to have chosen the wrong side during the riots. Eh, that's a good way to use the money. On the other hand, some of these confiscations may have inten been intended more for show than for revenue. Probus, all of whose property was taken in January, found himself back in control of his assets within the year, and his son or grandson would later marry Theodora's daughter. The marriage of Theodora's daughter into Anastasius's family is a sign of Theodora's acceptance at the highest level of society. And this last part was a final, lasting legacy of pomp, decorum, and kindness. Theodora's primary goal her entire life was seemingly to strengthen her power. Others may have felt that there's no survival without victory, for her life was no life without purple, and so she was prudent, conservative, and defensive in calculating all possible reactions to each one of hers. She also drew on her experience within the Nika events. She sensed that there was strength and continuity, not an initiative or risk. She was proud of the fact that provinces and cities in Asia were now called Theodorias, such as the ancient Syrian city of Anasartha, now called Kanazir. Anasartha, now Kanazir, at the time near the Persian border, she was pleased to see her name joined with the emperors in dedications and in monograms atop the columns of wonderful new churches. She loved power, but yet she still did some amazing things. She also developed policies going beyond the purely personal. She worked for others, too. She wanted women to have new status within the family, in harmony with Christian principles that would rule and discipline daily life. She supported curbs on abuses of power in the provinces where Justinian's eye could not reach. She remembered the many local hecaboluses out there. 
Former actress was a master of timing and she knew how to judge an audience's reaction. She had not lost those skills even after 10 or more years away from the stage. She understood that after the Nika Rebellion, certain signals were required both in the fire-blackened city and elsewhere. It was crucial to display the splendor and initiative of the Imperial Majesty. She put her mark on the city quite literally with statues of herself. Basically, she erected one near uh, very popular public baths, which were rebuilt after the 532 fires. Another rose atop a porphyry column in the Arcadene, a thermal bath complex that was the most enchanting leisure spot in the capital. It had gentle breezes and dappled light reflecting the water. So attractive was the place that it was written that those who stroll there can even converse with people sailing by. But most attractive of all was the statue. The statue is indeed beautiful, but still inferior to the beauty of the empress herself, for to express her loveliness in words or to portray it in a statue would, for a mere human being, be altogether impossible. The sight is unrecognizable now, and the statue is long gone, just like Theodora's beauty herself, as it happens with everybody. We can only imagine the harmonious effect of the dark periphery against the white marble and the blue-green of the sea. In matters of religion, Justinian was drawn to theological speculation where Theodora was much less keen on talk than on action. She was interested in helping those who had helped her, and those who made sacrifices for their faith, as may be best appreciated through a remarkable story that John of uh, Ephesus tells. Sometime after 536, he records she met with a deeply subsocial individual named Mare, who hailed from Amida region. The mayor made his own clothes from wool rags. John says that he could not leave any written record of the things the man said to the imperial couple because no one would believe that anyone would speak the way he did to these two world rulers. After listening to Mayor's opening tirade, Theodora offered him a place in the palace community, and her treasurer offered him a very large sum of money to divide between his own needs and those of the poor. Mayor took the bag from the treasure, threw it across the room, telling Theodora to go fuck herself, or at least that's what John says, and stormed out of the palace. She let him go, and when he settled at Psyche, the modern area of Galad on the north side of the Golden Horn, she routinely sent her people there to try and win his friendship. During this time, Theodora took the position of power and used it to try and change the perspective for women and the poor everywhere, as previously being a member of both. Theodora had not forgotten her widowed mother nor her fatherless childhood. The provisions for inherit inheritance in Justinian's laws were not random. Before, only sons could inherit, but now their right was extended to daughters. Furthermore, the new laws allowed a widow to take possession of the dowry she had brought to the marriage, and the dowry now returned to the wife's family if she died, or if the marriage was dissolved. Even beyond issues of dowry and inheritance, women's status was enhanced during these years. Women became an autonomous economic entity, in charge of her own property, her own jewelry, garments, real estate, furnishings. She was able to own things for the first time. A woman could buy and sell, lend and borrow, even to or from her own husband. Justinian and Theodora sought to create a deeply Christian society based on marriage and the nuclear family. This meant that the new laws identified a woman as a wife and marriage was endowed with deep meaning. Justinian's laws noted marriage does not exist in sexual relations, but in conjugal affection. This general intention underlay each legislative act on the topic, and the same intention is seen in the emperor's laws that expressed the love he felt for his wife, Theodora, and also the fact that he was still emperor that might have had something to do with it. Theodora's attention to women has made some observers call her a feminist. Um, modern feminism has ideological elements that would have been quite foreign to the empress's spiritual concepts. Regardless, Theodora was a feminist insofar as she focused on women and altered women's position in society. But she worked to strengthen women within the context of the mononuclear family, the basic cell of what was at the time an innovative blueprint for Christian society, whereas the explosive feminism of the 20th century aimed to separate or liberate women from that nucleus. 
But women's issues were not the emperor and empress's exclusive focus in the great year of 535. They also redefined the duties of provincial functionaries, rebalancing and correcting a situation that in Theodora's mind was doubtless personified by Hecapolis and Pentopolis. With her usual attention to economic implications, she must have exhorted Justinian to raise the officials' compensation and thus suppress their temptation to make money illicitly, especially their tendency to squeeze the most defenseless populations. If the officials got more satisfaction from serving the empire, they would be more efficient. The provision of law would thus reinforce the emperor's power, fulfilling Theodora's usual objective. These raises in pay went hand in hand with a tighter bond of personal dependency on the Augusti, right? They give us more money, we have to rely on them more. Anyone who served the emperor and empress now had to take a solemn, demanding oath. I swear on the all-powerful God, his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our God, on the Holy Spirit, on Mary, the holy and glorious ever-Virgin Mother of God, on the four Gospels I hold in my hands, on the holy archangels Michael and Gabriel, that I shall keep a pure conscience toward our most divine and pious rulers Justinian and Theodora, his consort in power, that I shall loyally serve them in carrying out the office that their mercy has entrusted to me, and that I shall willingly bear and any burden and trouble deriving from the office that they have entrusted to me on behalf of their empire. I am in the communion of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church of God. In no way shall I at any time go against it, nor shall I allow anyone to do so. To the full extent of my powers, I also swear that I did not give anything to anybody for the office to which I have been appointed, and shall not do so. That last part is something we should include. But that I have been appointed to this office, so to speak, without any gratuity, and that therefore I can appear before the subjects of our most holy emperors satisfied of the treatment that the treasury has assigned to me, that should I fail at any time to act, may I undergo both here and in the afterlife, in keeping with the terrible judgment of our great Lord God and our Savior Jesus Christ, the fate of Judah, the leprosy of Jehezi, and the terror of Cain, May I suffer the penalties provided for by the law of their mercy. Woo! That, well, that's one hell of an oath. Literally, if you break it, you're, you're going to hell. Or, that's what it says, at least. Naming Theodora specifically within the oath served two purposes. To threaten functionaries who did wrong and to remind the minister who was in charge of enforcing the law, John the Cappadocian, about Theodora's authority. It was not a warning to be taken lightly. To oversee the management and eventual transfer of her personal property to her relatives and protégés, and to freely pursue her policies, Theodora established her own palace outside of Constantinople. Some people kind of speculate that Theodora may have had a fling, or that her, her and Justinian's love may have been kind of falling apart, because um, Justinian stayed within the capital. Theodora moved just outside of it to her own palace, but in these following years, Theodora implemented a plan to get a pope removed from office, stretch Constantinople's power all the way to Rome, and unify a kingdom that had been separated for centuries. Silverius, the pope's removal, was a weighty event. He was transferred, actually kind of deported to far-off Lycia in Asia Minor. Then he was returned to Italy so his position could be re-examined. The official reaction at the palace alternated between displays of Christian virtue and feigned shock and ignorance about the events surrounding the deposition. Silverius was finally exiled, probably at Vigilius's and Theodora's behest, to the island of Pontia, now Panza, in the Tyrrhenian Sea, where he died. Basically, Theodora threw quite a plot. Um, I don't have really all of the time in the world to tell you about it, she managed to get a pope removed. Pretty impressive stuff. Shortly thereafter, the removal of Silverius, the great basilica of Hagia Sophia dominates Istanbul's skyline to this day, and it remains one of the world's architectural marvels. It was dedicated on December 27th, 537. Basically, Hagia, the Hagia Sophia, the grand Hagia Sophia that we know today, was built during the time of Justinian and Theodora. In his account from the new church, just north of the revamped square in the front of the palace, Procopius describes the advice Justinian gave the architects when the building might be unstable. 
The historian's implication is that the structure could not have been completed without the emperor's perceptive advice, and that he must have been channeling divine inspiration, for Procopius says the emperor knew nothing about architecture. Hagia Sophia is the place where imperial and divine powers unite, and a place where one cannot forget the empress, whose monograms appear within those, with those of her husband, and who is depicted on altar cloths, joining hands with Mary and Jesus. Theodora then managed to get John of Cappadocia removed from office for plotting to take the throne. Damn, she's good at getting people removed from office. This was someone whom she had deeply disagreed with for a very long time. It is at this point in the reading that it becomes readily apparent that Theodora holds real power. The removal of a pope, the removal of high-ranking officials, and even removal of Justinian's top official, John. Even as John was heading south, something far deadlier than anyone had encountered in recorded history of the Mediterranean was heading north. The Great Plague. That's right, a plague. Often referred to as Justinian's Plague entered the region in the summer of 542, and it shattered Justinian's ambitions, for the time being anyway, and brought Theodora face-to-face -face with challenges greater even than the Nika Revolt. One of the first instances of bubonic plague in Mediterranean history appears to have originated in Central Africa. It spread steadily north, and first reports of deaths from the new and terrible disease appeared in Ethiopia and southern Egypt in 541. The next year, the pestilence arrived in Constantinople, then people fucking freaked out, and this plague raged throughout the eastern provinces for three long years. Ooh. Contemporary descriptions are explicit on the symptoms, that's how we know it was the plague, and this has allowed modern researchers to identify the illness as stemming from the bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis. That bacterium ordinarily, is ordinarily transmitted to humans via bites from the fleas of infected small rodents. Fuck you, rodents. Fuck you, fleas. Symptoms include the sudden onset of fever, weakness, chills, and one or more swollen and tender lymph nodes. These are the buboes that give this form of the plague its name. Ew, bubonic. Whereas in modern populations, it's treated with antibiotics. In the 6th century, you died. The afflicted had recourse only to bathing, bed rest, and prayer. Go listen to the miasma theory you want to hear my opinion on the plague. The wide's Okay, where was I? Plague, miasma in the 6th century had recourse only to bathing, bed rest, and prayer. The widespread interest and belief in miraculous cures are to some degree a reflection of the fact that for the average person who lacked access to the sort of physician who might treat a member of the imperial household, survival from a serious illness was something of a miracle. Indeed, in a society such as is that the Roman Empire of the time, which regarded illness as a punishment for sin, doctors and aesthetic holy men were seen equally as potential agents of cure, and may have regarded each other as useful sources for information. The danger of the plague was that it struck so fast and spread so rapidly. One feature of medicine recognized during Theodore's time, as well as in the modern world, was that of quarantine, and that was the only way to prevent the spread of this disease, and of many others. One person we find trying to institute quarantine in southern Turkey in the 540s was a local holy man, Nicholas of Sion, the figure known more commonly today as Santa Claus. See, I even brought Santa Clauses up in this bitch. Oh yeah, happy news, Santa Claus, bad news, the death toll was horrendous. Between 5 and 10,000 people perished in a single day in Constantinople alone. The full toll in the capital may have reached into the hundreds of thousands, possibly around half the city's population, while in one town on the Egyptian border all but eight inhabitants were found dead. The pestilence recognized no difference in class or status. Common people and nobles were smitten as one. Citizens were seen to totter and fall in the streets. Merchants or customers might be suddenly overcome in mid-transaction. In Constantinople, the story went around of a house filled with nothing but the dead, twenty bodies in all, of infants wailing as their mothers died. A victim of the plague would later recall how, when he was young during the first outbreak, he was afflicted with the swellings, and how later it took his wife, many of his children's relatives, servants, and tenants. For some, he said, the first symptoms were in the head, making the eyes bloodshot and face swollen, 
descending to the throat. Others were suddenly smitten with a violent stomach disorder. While in those whom the buboes swelled up, there was a raging fever, then death if it came by the third day. In Constantinople, there, were, there was a more immediate problem. Sometime after the plague took hold, buboes appeared on Justinian's groin. Doctors said that some of the victims would not regain full use of their faculties. Though I'm saying. What would happen if the emperor did not fully recover, people might get the idea that he was dysfunctional and palace security was scarcely ironclad. He would survive, however, albeit with a pain in his junk. I'm not going to lie, if I were sleeping with a dude, I'd probably avoid the affected area, especially when the affliction is appropriately named Bubos. Disgusting. On the plus side, or should I say on the pus side, they weren't spending much time together at this point. Remember, she was off in her own palace. Whatever Procopius may assert, the person who stood at the center of this diverse group of officials, soldiers, and priests was unlikely to have been someone who owed her power and influence to sheer terror. Theodora was an empress, and the people were well aware that she did not always get her way with her husband, although most of the time, the events of the Council of Constantinople in 536 made it clear, as did John the Cappadocian's long career, for instance, didn't mean absolute power. These qualities that would have drawn people to her were the same that attracted Justinian. She was smart, she was tough, vigorous, and she was quite likely a very engaging person to be around. She was loyal to her friends. She had come from the provinces and made herself an empress. But in the crisis of 542, she once again did what was necessary to make sure that both she remained empress and that Justinian remained emperor. And it was through her ability alone that she would hold this title for the rest of her life. She spent the rest of her days at her new residence built around the time of the plague and played her usual role in the government. Her time on this earth was clearly running out, and a more fulfilling life could not have been granted to the daughter of an entertainer in the world of Rome. No empress left so profound a mark on the imagination of her people as did Theodora. She was remembered more as a villain, perhaps, the persecutor of popes, the castrator of bishops, and her rumored role in the demise of Silverius was asserted in the mid medieval collection of papal lives known as the Liber Pontificalis, the Book of Popes, by means of a forged letter to Belisarius, ostensibly from Theodora, ordering him to eliminate the Holy Father. Let's end on this, right? Let us not remunerate on the lives of those who we think should be, but instead focus on the life we know we can live. If studying Theodora has taught me anything, it's that regardless of the obstacle, there's a way. I know being a woman in a male patriarchal society is difficult and that I can't fully grasp what it means from my point of view. I hope only that my thoughts and recollections on the subject are remembered fondly and with merit only given to the fact that as a man I will try my best to make the voices of the past heard. I finished writing this uh, all the way back after George Floyd's death and I, and as I am sure most of you would know, I seek to expose the truth of our dastardly past. Black Lives Matter. Please, if you are protesting, if you are protesting, protest as safe as possible. In the face of an adversary as militarized as the police, I know that will be difficult. Stay safe. Stay strong. This is a fight worth fighting. If any out there want to talk to me about the current events, want my views on current events, or just want to say hi, please reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or email. You can find the links to those things in the description. But reach out to me, talk to me. If you're going through hardship, you know, I, I want to say hi. And uh, I appreciate everybody that listens. And as well as you guys, or as good of a job as you guys do listening to the podcast, I promise I'll do uh, listening to you as well. You can support my show directly by donating on my website. And I'll have that link in the description for the podcast. Make sure to check it out. Make sure to vote, register to vote, and be an active member and part of your community. I love you all. I can't believe you guys have stuck with me. I know, I again, I have been holding up my end of the bargain. Um, I'm really trying my best. Also, I will be starting a new podcast shortly, so make sure to check that out in the very near future called Dads Off Duty, where you get to meet me in more of a personal light and communicate with another guy. We just talk about what it's like to be a dad in 2020. But 
I am Seth Michaels, and as always, history remembers. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. <laughs>